Hello and welcome to another episode of What Comes Next, a show all about the technologies that will shape your future. I'm Rob Kellner. I'm Amy Dickens. And I'm Kwaku Akonmensa. Hi, and welcome back to AI for Good, our special four-part series all about how AI is being used to tackle some of humanity's biggest challenges. Each episode, Amy, Quaker, and I are chatting to three fantastic founders and hearing all about how they're using AI to make our world a better place. We're publishing new episodes every Thursday throughout the month of May, so make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. As we mentioned on previous shows, we partnered with two fantastic companies, Microsoft UK and the Social Tech Trust, and you can read more about what both these companies are doing in this space in the show notes of this episode. Now, without further ado, on to the first interview of this episode, Amy is speaking to Hello Lamppost. Today, I'm speaking with Tiernan Mines, CEO of Hello Lamppost. Hello Lamppost are a company who encourage people to interact with the built environment in order to give feedback to urban planners, to help them navigate their city, or to give them an interesting story about the area around them. Basically, they allow you to speak with your city. Here's Tiernan. Hello Lamppost is a is a software platform that uh, that allows anyone in in any public realm, like a street, to have a a chat, a conversation with with any object in that street via their mobile phone. Um, so using existing platforms like SMS or, or WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger, um, and and having a, a conversation with a, a bench or a lamppost or a building or a statue uh, in any street. Yeah, so uh, we we kind of help uh, people understand their local environment and and help organizations like councils better understand their communities. Now, I have to be honest with you. I have been a fan of Hello Lamppost for quite a few years. I oh, actually yeah. wrote a blog post on you guys in, I think, 2015, maybe it was. Because I'm a kind of, I'm a, I'm a, I, use, I studied um, urban planning at university and I'm just like a, I guess, hobby urbanist is the, is the word. So I'm very... I've always been very keen on companies that are trying to make cities more engaging and more interesting and more playable. So maybe if you want to explain what a playable city is, or what a playful city is and why it's important for people to engage with their urban environment. Yeah, I guess that's kind of it hits on one of our really early observations when we were coming up with or developing Hello Lamppost was that A, our urban environments and and objects and and structures within our urban environments are, are really like single use. They're very like analog. So you know, a lamppost is used for lighting, and a bench is used for sitting on, and a building has a single use as well. Um, there's no there's no interaction layer to to any of those things. Um, our cities and urban environments are very much passed through uh, and used for a single purpose, um, and that's kind of one of the observations. But all of these objects and, and structures and points within these urban environments actually act as a kind of hyper-local almost reference point um, to where where we are at that point in time. Um, so that was kind of one observation is is why existing environments and infrastructure and, and objects aren't used for more than one purpose. And that kind of hits on, on um, the kind of interactivity or, or playfulness of a city. We, our perception of like a playable city or, or an interactive city is, is, is plain and simple, just more people focused. That leads on to like one of the other observations that we had was was you know cities and and towns have, have really historically just happened to people. You know, Apple would never have created the iPhone without listening to who was going to be using it, right? Whereas historically, that's exactly what's happened with our towns and cities is um, you know the few have decided what they think is best for the many. And yeah, we we kind of see one of the purposes of a playable city or an interactive city is is to bridge that gap. And, and to solve that problem of, of um, creating urban environments that meet closer meet our needs and wants as a society. Um, mm-hmm. that, I guess kind of the playable city is how we were born. Uh, there's a, an organization called Watershed in Bristol that mm. um, I'm sure you know. Uh, I do, yeah. Hello Lamppost, um, who created the Playable City Award. And it was is exactly that. It's trying to cr- encourage ideas that make our cities uh, more people focused and more playable, um, and and that's kind of how we we evolved. Hello, lamppost is is making the environment more interactive. I love the um, the kind of unforeseen things that can happen when a city becomes a bit more interactive and a bit more playable. And I know that Melbourne a few years ago, I think they had a similar kind of idea where um, they had their trees all numbered and people yeah. could text into Melbourne City Council to to report 
if there were issues with the tree. And what they actually got were like hundreds of love letters to different trees yeah. around the city. Yeah, yeah. Our observations from that is 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 people can find confide in the strangest things, right? Um, we see it in all of our projects where suddenly we're seeing elements of you know, loneliness being alleviated because people are talking to an inanimate object uh, and it's, you know, it's anonymized. So people like leave messages for other people or, you know, uh, they respond to questions from objects that, you know, I wouldn't dream of responding to if someone, if a real person asked me, right? Um, so it is, it is lovely to see. So the a user they don't just they don't just sort of have a conversation with um, a, a specific like a, a lamp post or a post box or something, but they you can actually you've sort of got a game built in too where people can leave a message for the next user. Is that yeah? So it's it's we always describe it. It's a, it is a two way conversation. So um, yeah. a person can can find out information about why the construction is happening or you know the history of that area or that object um, but then the object will also ask the person questions about you know their their opinions what they can see their perceptions um, and what what can happen is is that object can can share a response from someone else um, so you know taking one like more playful example I guess is you know a bench in a park might ask you know what's your favorite memory of, of this area and that that response mm. will then be shared with someone else. So suddenly you're starting to see other people's perceptions and other people's memories from that area. So you you touched on this a little bit earlier, but um, can you kind of talk a little bit about what I guess traditionally um, how traditionally people would interact with their city, and also how the sort of traditional roots of of feeding back when there are problems or when there are you know information that that city users want to give back can you talk a little bit through that and why that's that's a problem yeah sure so i, I guess from the information gathering side, um tools that exist today you know are anything from you know visiting standard websites uh, whether it be about the culture of the area whether it be about planning permission happening in the area um all the way through to you know plaques on a statue um or someone stopping you in the street with a clipboard right that's the kind of information gathering side. So it's 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 pretty high barrier to entry um, in terms of you know, knowing those resources even exist, let alone actually bothering to go and find it and read it. Um, and it's not two way, right? It's it's one way. Um, and then on the on the feeding back side, I mean, tr like traditional existing methods are are again um, things like uh, town hall meetings, clipboard surveys, uh, Twitter to an extent. Um, as well as like letter drops to residents, right? Um, and again, the the barrier to entry there is is enormous, and we see that eked out with with how much participation and engagement councils actually have from from residents. Um, it's it's really low, um, mainly because it's it's inconvenient, um, it's high barrier to entry. So that's kind of where we're seeking is is ultimately increasing participation and increasing engagement in in your local area. Um, or indeed in a new city, right? Um, we want to make it easier for people to find out information about the area that they're in, um, but also give their feedback and opinions and, and, and memories and thoughts uh, while they're at it. There's an interesting dynamic going on there too, because it's um, when you think of the story of a city or when you're, let's say you're a tourist in London and you're walking around, probably the kinds of stories you're going to seek out are the, you know, the big tourist sites, the the historical spots that you're missing out on like the little tiny um stories that are happening all around so by doing something like interacting with uh, a post box let's say um you might be learning you know like you might be getting a little bit of a story of a, a local resident or a tourist who um was in that area previously or you're kind of picking up these these smaller everyday stories that are also really important for the city that you're in yeah, exactly, and I think you, you pretty much you pretty much summarised it. Really, we we see Hello Lamppost in the future being the interaction platform between the, any physical environment and and the end user. So whether you're stepping off a plane in a new city and and you're creating your own cultural experience just by chatting to objects as you go, or whether you're 
chatting to objects in your local area because you want to know why construction is happening or, or um, you think that there should be mus- more bus stops down this street, right? Um, mm. That seamless low barrier to entry um, to, to kind of bridge the gap and bring people, pe- bring people into those local decisions. Hmm. So you've got a lot of layers there too, because yeah, there's the sort of fun layer, the, the playable layer. Um, but as you said there, there's also the consultation layer where people can be feeding back on, yeah, there's, there's not enough transit to my area, or um, I don't feel safe walking down the street at night because there's not enough lighting. Yeah, exactly. And, and we, we, we don't see why all of those all of those topics and, and use cases can't be done through friendly conversation. Um, you know, we don't, we don't need these lengthy forms or having to go somewhere to do it. Um, it, it, it should all be done in, you know, for friendly conversation. Um, mm. because that's, that's far easier for the masses. So you are located in a few different cities now. Can you tell me a little bit about the different areas that you operate in? And maybe potentially touch on, um, I don't know if there are cultural differences behind the way people use the technology in other places. Yeah, I'll give you a couple of examples. So yeah, we, we've, as you said, we've deployed in, in cities kind of all over the world in different languages um, for different reasons as well. So, uh, you know, we helped or we're helping the city of Summerside in, in Canada um, with the participatory budgeting. So, you know, the citizens are literally shaping the budget um, by chatting to objects, um, so deciding what they want their taxes spent on. Um, really? Yeah, yeah. So you know, objects might say that you know there's a surplus in tax by X amount. You know, what what's your priorities for it to be spent on? And that's going directly into the city decision making, um, which is exactly how it should be, right? It should be that easy. Yeah. <laughs> and are you? I mean, do you get to see as the company? Do you get to see people's feedback, or is that fed? like directly to yeah so we process that basis we do all the analytics on the interactions that happen um okay and we provide that data back to to the cities so do you get to read some of the crazy things that people want taxpayers money to go to yeah yeah i mean again like depends on the area depends on the city but mm. you'll always find trends right um but the beauty of it being you know an anonymous conversation with with an inanimate object is you get that honesty uh-huh, yeah. As opposed to being scared to put your hand up in a room or say it in front of someone or to someone um, or have your name next to it on Twitter or on a form, right? Um, sure, yeah. But yeah, we get some crazy stuff. But uh, but for the most part, when you're talking about spending your taxes, people are people are pretty opinionated but but sensible at the same time. It's more the like cultural ones that we, we see some really fun interactions. Um, so, for example, in, in Belfast, We've deployed across their their cultural district called the Maritime Mile, so people uh-huh. can speak to you know lampposts through to uh, statues, uh, through to these big ships where the Titanic was built, and you know these objects tell the history of the area of that of that object, and because of that context, you know people tend to tend to be more willing to discover um, and find out those those hidden stories and and find other objects to to interact with. I guess that it's we find the difference is more in um, in people's movement, um, people's behaviours. Typically, mm. North American cities are, are you get more sprawl; they're more spread out than sure, than yeah. Cities. Uh, so you know, interactions tend to happen at you know key points of interest or key points of gathering, as opposed to you know in, in central London, for example, there's a lot more um, there's a lot more like walking going on through residential areas. Um, so it's not always you know, the, the obvious points that people are interacting. Fascinating. <laughs> um, what do you hope is is going to happen in the next couple of years with Hello Lamppost? Like what's the kind of dream vision for where this can go? Yeah, so uh, I kind of touched on it before, but yeah, we, we mm. really want to really Hello Lamppost to evolve into the um, ubiquitous communication interface between physical environments and their end user. So anything from your local street to the shopping center to an airport to a, to a coffee shop as i said before like being able to just step off a plane and know that hello lamppost exists and, and know how to interact um that's kind of where we see it sitting in, in the in the longer term um i guess our focus at the moment is is just reaching more cities um so getting mm. getting in front of more cities um to make them aware of of our platform and our tool 
um, so that they can reach more of, of their communities as well. Um, so that's our that's our focus at the moment, and and part of that is 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 we're raising a funding round at the moment to to help with that and and also make mm-hmm. some improvements to the product. Is it important to you as you move forward and and spread into new areas? Is it important to you to maintain both elements of the kind of feedback and the and the like the play as well, or are you? Like, are you, are you looking at, for example, gamification? Are you looking at maybe like people interacting and they get set a challenge and they have to find something else in the city and get another clue from that? Or are you thinking more along the lines of, um, it is going to be used more for feedback on the city or the street or the airport or, uh, wherever the user happens to be. The, the feedback element is is always going to be, uh, built in, but it's always been passive. So it's, it's. You know, there's a reason why we didn't launch it as a as a you know a web survey feedback uh, tool. Yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly right. So it, it that is one of the outcomes, one of the outputs okay. for the cities, um, just because objects are able to ask questions, um, but it's all done in a in a friendly, um, playful way. Um, so that that is always one of the outcomes that that is going to exist. Um, one of our pillars is always going to be uh keeping the interactions playful and friendly um Mm -hmm. that kind of speaks to something that that we've observed is you know people are far more willing to interact when they when it feels like there's a personality there Mm. Um, and that that's that's kind of uh that's what the playfulness and the friendliness gives you is is a personality for for whatever you're interacting with on your point about gamification and and incentivization so there's there's already elements of that built in so you know Sending people on a, a sort of a, a hunt or a trail to go and speak to and, and find other objects, or um, you know, releasing rewards in return for people having conversations with objects. Um, mm-hmm. That sort of stuff's already built in. Um, so we want to make it as rich as possible for the user. Um, mm-hmm. You know, whether it's finding out information about where they are, or you know, wanting to actually feedback about something specific, or you know, just wanting to to get a free coffee by interacting with six objects, right? Um, oh wow! So we want to build all of that that into the experience, but yeah, ultimately, it's um, for the user. It's about finding out information, um, or or you know, answering questions or, or feeding back to to that area. Um, that's that's always going to remain at our core. And you also mentioned a little bit earlier about a new product that you're launching um, kind of in response to, uh, dare I say it, COVID-19. <laughs> um, do you want to tell us just a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So it's, a, it's an adap- adaptation of, of Hello Lamppost. Um, so we're calling it Hello Council at the moment. Um, and essentially, it's going to enable people to have uh, the same sort of friendly conversations on their mobile phone from home or on council websites. On a, on a chat window and, and they'll be able to find out information and guidelines on, on COVID, but also about council services or just really just have a, a have a friendly chat with, with the platform. Um, and, and hopefully that, that alleviates feelings of, of isolation and, and loneliness and, and, um, and anxiety. Um, but also, you know, alleviating, alleviating um, strain on, on council services uh, from, you know, human-led teams and customer services and things like that, because people can self-serve information from, from councils. That was Tiered in Minds from Hello Lamppost. To find out more about Hello Lamppost, go to hellolamppost.co.uk. That's H-E-L-L-O-L-A-M-P-P-O-S-T dot co dot UK. Or follow them on Twitter at hellolamppost underscore. Don't forget that underscore at the end. Next up, Kwaku speaks with Recycli. Thanks, Amy. Next up on this episode of AI for Good, I'm speaking to Victor DeWolf, CEO of Recycli. Recycli are using machine vision to revolutionize recycling. Victor, over to you. So Recycli, we're doing two things. The first is providing visibility on waste chains. So when you look at our supply chains, these are some of the world's most tracked systems. Uh, You know, Coca-Cola is able to deliver items in all of the world's countries, except I think North Korea and Cuba. But the moment all of those items end up in a bin, nobody has any idea where they go. Um, and the problem there is there's no mechanism to actually track it. So if you were to try barcodes, well, you have a line of sight issue. You could add RFID to every product. But that's obviously going to give you an extra charge of five people product and now add some, add some sort of toxic 
heavy metals. Um, the only great machine is your human eye. You're able to see everything at a low cost. If I were to show you, you know, a bottle or a can, you know, it's aluminium. You don't need sort of RFID to detect the brand or barcode. Equally to detect the material, you don't need uh, laser spectroscopy or X-ray. And so we're really replicating that human ability to see items. Okay, so so this is uh, machine vision that we're talking about here, visual AI. That's it. Yeah, same technology used in driverless cars applied to to the waste problem. So okay, one of the things that um, that AI relies upon is lots and lots and lots of fairly structured data. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. And one of the things that I would imagine that uh, waste management struggles with is uh, that structured data. Where where on earth would you go about finding a huge data set there? Well, so we had to put in a lot of work in creating it. Um, and and a lot of, I guess, our, our IP goes behind that data set. Um, uh-huh. And loads of interesting things we can do with that data. Um, now, yeah, I can't go into too much detail about that. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, but, but yes, it is absolutely fundamental to have um, sort of not not only lots of data, but very high quality data. Okay. Okay. And can you give us an idea of what scale we're talking about in terms of the data points that you're uh, taking into consideration? Sure. So generally, you'd want sort of millions. We're talking millions of images here. Now, anything above that becomes very hard to scale and will actually significantly improve the accuracy of your system. A lot of work you can do then is actually on the the algorithm that, you know, I guess, trains on that data. And you can okay. do a lot of sort of fine-tuning um, and, and as well as re-engineering entirely new algorithms that can deal specifically with the waste problem. And, and so once you have this um, this significant data set, could you give our listeners an idea of the efficiency that's offered um, by your database, by your AI, in comparison to the current status quo? So, so we do several things. The first is, yes, we sell the item passport logs we provide. Uh, in terms of new efficiencies, you know, in many cases, waste generators have no idea what they're generators. So we're going from 0% to a high accuracy, which is dependent right. on the commingling of the stream, and, and it will vary a lot depending on, on what what is in that waste stream and whether we have it sort of within our data set or you know develop specific techniques to, to deal with better with specific things. Okay. Um, and then the second is we also add robotics. So a lot of manual picking still exists in the waste mm-hmm. industry. You'll go outside London, most plants there operate 24-7. Some have sort of, you know, about 20 people manually picking there 24-7. That, that's costing every plant about 100,000 a year per picking oh, wow, station. Okay. So, that, so that's not one person, otherwise I'd become a waste picker tomorrow, but uh, three <laughs> shifts of, of eight people, of sort of eight hours. And that just means that a lot of the, it just, you know, hampers the economics of recycling. Uh, so we're also combining our system with robotics, um, which, you know, some people might say, you know, it's getting rid of jobs. What we see is actually all the plants are really struggling to even find people that are willing to do those jobs. Um, and it, yeah, it's just a terrible job, uh, especially now with, I guess, Corona is particularly uh, topical because now all that waste is no longer just waste, it's potentially hazardous waste as well. Um, of course, I didn't even think about that. But yeah, it, presumably a lot of the waste that would normally go into um, sorting facilities now has to be put straight into landfill. I'm not sure with the regulation about all of them. I do know a lot of plants still operate with manual pickers and just give them better sort of protective equipment. I also know some plants shut down. Um, for example, if, I know it's a case in a few in Belgium where, where they're, yeah, they just send everything to landfill or incineration. It's an interesting kind of quandary there between, okay, you automate, is it getting rid of jobs? But actually, it sounds to me like this is something that there's such a huge demand for uh, more efficient recycling that there has to be um, uh, a mechanization of that process at some point in order for it to scale to the level that we need it to in order to um, uh, to maybe not fix, but to assist in the, 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 the ecological problems that we're seeing at the moment. Absolutely. Um, so in, in plants, there is already a, quite a high degree of automation. Um, the okay. issue is a lot of those machines rely on the physical characteristics of materials rather than actually knowing what they are. 
So the way a large plant works, you might have big rotating disks at the front end, on top of which, for example, cardboard is supposed to float on top and smaller items fall through the gaps. Uh, but for example, that's not foolproof because the moment you have a small piece of cardboard, you get a mistake. Similarly, you'll have sort of a conveyor belt that moves upwards and that vibrates, on top of which paper is supposed to stay and clunkier items fall down. But equally, you get paper fall down and clunkier items stay on it. Yeah. Um, which means that essentially all the pickers, their main role is a lot of manual sort of quality control at the back end. Um, and so moving to targeted picking, having total item level knowledge is, is really going to be a game changer. Um, and, and another thing we're doing is also trying to move the industry towards decentralization. Because um, okay. now with the robotic picking, you have for the first time one machine that's able to pick out old materials. In the past, plants had to be built on massive scale simply because you needed one machine to pick out each individual type of material. And so given your waste stream maybe has, for example, 10 materials, you need at least 10 machines. Uh, and so can't do it at a small scale. Um, but this new technology allows us to now do it at a small scale. So, okay, just um, so I, I, I'm on the same page here. Um, previously, you might have had a huge... Um, conveyor belt with all sorts of different waste on it and along that conveyor belt the um, unsorted waste would meet a, a robotic arm that could identify pieces of paper another one that could identify um, broken computer chips and another that could um, identify aluminium cans for example and so on and so on and so on but now with um, with recyclized technology you can program all of that knowledge into one robotic arm potentially that's right. With the only change I'd make to that is currently there are no robotic arms. Okay. So, so it's only one large machine, like you know, a ballistic separator or big conveyor belt that rotates. Then you'll need one with an eddy current to remove aluminium. So it's loads of different machines every time for every sure. material. Um, sure. and, and that gives problems. So if you look back sort of 20 years ago, most plants were designed assuming, I don't know, somewhere between 20% of their waste stream was going to be newspaper. And they designed custom-made machines to remove that newspaper. Well, today, yeah, we don't have much newspaper. We have significantly more cardboard. Okay. Um, okay. And so a lot of plants need to be retrofitted to, to take in that new cardboard. Huh, okay. That's really interesting. And it, it sounds like the, um, the impacts that RecycleEye can have, it kind of has the ability to work on multiple levels. So you've described... Um, a big change on a personal level. So people that maybe would have had to um, pick through this, uh, this different types of waste uh, previously would now have a, a much more kind of refined um, set of different waste materials that they would uh, work through uh, in a recycling plant. But can you tell me a bit about how this could work on either on a company-wide and ecological scale, on a global scale, should we say? Sure. I think for recycling to be successful, it will need to work on a global scale. We'll be actually either succeed everywhere or we'll succeed nowhere. I think several things will have to happen. The first is we'll have to you know, build our own infrastructure to start scaling this. And yes, it'll take a bit of time and make sure that we build our system to really solve all the key pain points the industry is facing. Given a lot of people in our team have very strong technical backgrounds, uh, we don't want anybody to develop very technical, sort of geeky, super complex software that is, from a sort of engineering perspective, perhaps very interesting, um, but might not be the first thing that's needed immediately to solve the waste crisis we're having. Right, right. And at a, I guess, global perspective, it's also raising awareness of, you know, recycling is important. Um, and it has to be part of the solution um, for us to ever, you know, go to a circular economy. Absolutely. How how receptive are um, waste management companies and I suppose even um, consumer-facing corporates when you propose the solution that, that RecycleI has to them? So we, we found them very receptive. Um, I think it obviously varies who we're talking to. So there are obviously the large waste facilities where we can obviously add clear value there. Uh, but we've also been approached by a huge amount of businesses that wouldn't, you know, aren't associated with the industry, the waste industry at all. Uh, okay. But the reason they want to work with us and develop pilots is they recognize the importance of sustainability 
Um, and it's no longer just a buzzword. They are backing it with budgets and with entire teams dedicated for that. Um, and they want to essentially, from the wayside, they want to own their waste responsibilities. Um, and that's you know obviously not every corporate is like that, but we found them very responsive to you know, new innovations that allows them to do that. I suppose that brings me quite neatly onto my next question. Groups like the Extinction Rebellion and other ecologically focused groups place quite a significant emphasis on that engagement from big business, or at least that they should be held to account for their role in waste production. And they see that as a, a kind of integral part to, to tackling some of those problems, um, including global waste management. From your experience of working with presumably consumers, with ecological groups, and also big business, where do you believe the responsibility lies for tackling this and other um, ecological issues? I, I think at the end of the day, it's it's everybody has part responsibility. It'd be unfair saying it's only the FMCG's fault or it's only the consumer that needs to change their behavioral habits. Both mm. need to change. Um, from I do think the FMCG's share the burden of the responsibility because um, you can't reasonably expect consumers to know everything about every product and understand the difference between all the different types of plastics um, which in my view you also even some corporates don't fully understand the implications of what they do um, yeah. so you might for example a recent trend is you have a huge amount of what's called sort of bioplastics being rolled yeah. out um, whilst as a first idea, they sound like this great thing. Ooh, it's biodegradable or compostable or oxidizable. Loads of different words, but some aren't the same. So that does confuse the consumer. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't consider the ecosystem. Uh, so when the, the biological biodegradable cups, for example, they're good if you assume that your object is going to end up in the environment. Yes. But if you're in, your object ends up in a material recycling facility, Actually, it's much better just to have a conventional plastic item. Um, right, okay. Because currently, material recycling facilities have no machine that's able to detect you know, the biopolymers. Um, okay. so, or just, you know, they could, but they're just such, in such small amounts in the waste stream that nobody actually collects them. Um, so they just go to landfill. Equally, if they do get, say, you know, you have a PET batch and you get some bio PET in it, that actually pollutes your pure. PET batch, you'd rather have just pure PET. And, and so I think industries need to consider a lot more about ecosystems rather than, and, and I, I don't mean just environmental ones, I, I really mean the waste management ecosystems yeah. and how new products fit into that before immediately designing you know, a, a well-intentioned product. That's really, really interesting, you know, that, that something is, as you say, as well-intentioned as uh, bioplastics, which I'm sure has all of the, or gains all of the right reception at a consumer level. Actually, when you move through the waste management stream, it could potentially do more harm than good if it finds itself in the, in the wrong environment. Exactly. Now, of course, some bioplastics are good, some are but the point is you can't expect the consumers to know the difference between every brand and you know all the different types of polymers. Uh, yeah. It is the responsibility of the brands at the end of the day. Uh, and the, the brands are owning that responsibility increasingly. So looking forward um, over the next five to ten years, uh, what do you see as the future of waste management and where do you see Recyclize role in all of that? The future we see is... I'll summarize it in two words, is digitization, which currently there is very little of, and decentralization. The digitization is needed for having transparency in the industry and creating feedback loops that allocates responsibility towards people that pollute more. They then need to pay more for the waste they generate, as well as you know, gives discounts to people that give high-quality waste. Decentralization, because I think it's going to lead to a significantly more robust infrastructure that has sort of less sort of points of failure, is also more adaptable to varying waste streams. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, we used to have a lot of newspaper, now we don't, now we have a lot of cardboard. In the future, I expect that will reduce and we'll, for example, have also a lot more reuse items, which today we don't have either. Okay. Um, and so a decentralized model will have more resiliency. And recyclized role in there is to become the operating system 
of the waste industry to manage that. Some of the uh, predictions that ecologists are, are telling us about the next five to 10 years are, are fairly bleak. Do you think that uh, technologies like RecycleEye are a cause for hope? And how can a regular person like, like myself help with, uh, with the push towards a more ecological view of waste management? In my view, I think technology is the only thing that's going to help us out here. And as, as bleak as it sounds, I don't think individual behavioral patterns have a huge impact. Perhaps the biggest impact individuals can have is putting pressure on government representatives to change policies at the country or you know level, because um, that drives impact, uh, as well as pressure on the brands. Because um, at the end of the day, as much as you sort personally better, if there's no systemic system change, it's not going to move very far. Um, and so, yes, we need to keep doing the good things you know, every little step counts, but the vast majority of the change needs to be done at the national level and really at a corporate level. That was Victor DeWolf at RecycleEye. Awesome to have you on the show. To find out what RecycleEye is up to, please check out their website at RecycleEye.com. That's R-E-C-Y-C-L-E-Y-E.com. Now over to Rob for our final guest. Yes, thanks, Kwaku. On this last interview of episode two of AI for Good, we're speaking to Baobab Connect. Baobab has created a legal communication platform, which founder Guy Stern describes as the slack for justice. Here's Guy. So access to justice, which is the space that we're in, uh, specifically targets the people in the world who are currently unable to access the justice system. So firstly, they can't afford a lawyer, or secondly, they can't access the courts for one reason or another. They don't have the knowledge, they're not close enough to a court, and so they live in a situation in which often they have a pressing justice concern that's uh, stopping them from moving ahead in their life. And you may be surprised to learn that 5 billion people around the world are currently facing a justice concern uh, wow. that is um, affecting their life. Yeah, it's a huge number. It's pretty much half the world. Um, and when you you know further drill down into that, you'll know that uh, the country that I come from, for example, South Africa, there's 55 million people in the country and only 25,000 lawyers. So as you can imagine, um, the law and justice is something that was traditionally and, you know, currently enjoyed by what you can think of as the super wealthy. Okay. And so what you're doing is introducing technology to sort of help remedy that. So how are you using technology to give people kind of greater access to justice? Right. So look, we, the access to justice sector exists. We didn't create it by any imagination. And basically what it comes down to is there are, uh, there are these people called community paralegals, and you'll find them in every country in the world, in Indonesia, Uganda, you name it, they, they have different names. Sometimes they're referred to as the barefoot lawyers, uh, sometimes they're referred to as uh, community advice officers and so on. But effectively, when you are living in, in certain situations, you would go to a community advice office, a community paralegal. Over here in the UK, you call them advice centers and so on, law, law centers. Um, and so you'll you'll go to one of these community paralegals, and typically they've got a very limited uh, set of skills. You know, they would have uh, maybe done a short course or something like that. They'll try to help you to the best of their ability. And when they come stuck, they'll often reach out to someone in their network, maybe a pro bono lawyer, a legal advisor, someone like that, and who they'll bounce the subjects and the details of the case over. So as you can probably imagine, where tech falls in is that we can facilitate those connections. We can put a community paralegal and a lawyer and a chat together and have them discuss the merits of the case. And if that lawyer can't help, the lawyer can invite the lawyer friends. Um, it sort of looks and feels a little bit like a, a WhatsApp chat or something like a Slack for justice. Um, and so we, we put together the framework on which these organizations can then run the digital side of their business. So yes, I've seen images of the, of the platform at work. And like you say, it does look like a sort of Slack for uh, the legal profession. How does it help sort of legal legal professionals connect what are sort of the, the the extra tools or the different environments that it creates that help people do their job okay so i'll give you an example again where i come from in south africa so there is a part of the country that i've been dealing a lot with called mtata where people are most of them live in mud huts 
And so they, um, you know, they have a certain way of life. They have little villages and, you know, in each of these villages will be a community advice office and they'll go to that community advice office, which might also be a hut or maybe within the local school or something like that. And they'll sit and talk to this community paralegal. That community paralegal will then connect uh, through various technology and one of those being our technology with a pro bono lawyer who's sitting halfway across the country, as you can imagine, probably in a shiny building in a law firm. Um, and so that geographical divide is the first thing that we are bridging with our tech. Um, but then further to that, what we're able to do is, if you can imagine this pro bono lawyer, uh, rather than having a one hour consult video call or something like that, uh, with one paralegal where they sit and take notes and uh, do everything in, in that sort of old fashioned uh, synchronous way, uh, they would work in much more of an asynchronous way. So that lawyer would be engaged in maybe 20 or 30 conversations at any given time with various paralegals. And so they're texting back and forth, asking questions, getting answers. Um, and it, it basically gives the, the lawyer the capacity to multitask, to get more done in one hour. Um, and where in the legal profession, you know, you've got to be looking at your time and you've got to be working out which client you're billing and how long you're working on each case. And in some instances, maximizing you know your hours when it comes to pro bono there's a very limited time available and so the tools that you use are going to be different tools they're going to be tools that look and feel a lot, a lot more like the whatsapp and the slack in that you want to be having multiple conversations at the same time um, in order to expedite uh, the process and maximize the impact right so like yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So like you say, time is is absolutely the finite resource here. And what you're doing is sort of finding a way to sort of squeeze every second out of a pro bono lawyer's time so they can offer as much advice to as many people as possible. For sure. There's, there's an aspect to that. But then there's also an aspect of what I call the Netflix lawyer. <laughs> and I'll tell you what I mean. So this lawyer's had a long day at the office and um, they've now come home, they've cooked their dinner and they're sitting down on the sofa. And it's probably the first time that they're able to do something non-billable outside of the working day. And so what we give them is this the app, which again, looks and feels a lot like their Instagram chat and their, and their WhatsApp and so on. Um, and that can sit in, you know, in their hand and whilst they're, you know, put their feet up watching Netflix, they can actually go through these cases. And, and in some cases, they're, they're sort of overseeing a conversation between a, um, a paralegal and a client. In other cases, they're going to be looking at, at something that, that just came up and a question that's being asked. Um, but what I'm what I'm trying to say is that they can create create basically time out of nothing. So that's a time of the day where they were never going to be billing a client, where they were never going to be doing any work. Um, but if you can make the user experience so easy for them that it's as easy as opening up a chat and texting back saying this looks good or I'd rather do it like that, you can create the zero to one opportunity. You can create this um, this entire pro bono resource that never existed before. Um, and in a lot of ways, that's that's where we are. The people that are on our platform are some are very busy people, the legal professionals. They don't have a lot of time in the day. Um, and tr the traditional mechanism that they used, uh, you know, the face-to-face -face meetings and, um, or the video conferences and so on, uh, those took up a lot of their time. So it's it's sometimes, you know, it's, it's not necessarily even a 10x or a 20x improvement. It's the opportunity that's zero to one uh, new bit of time that you've sort of eked out of nowhere. <laughs> Is it true then that many lawyers would like to do perhaps more pro bono work than they than they otherwise do or currently do but this sort of the infrastructure needed around their pro bono work is such that actually it's quite a high barrier to entry to do something on a, on a kind of casual basis and what you're doing is really bringing that barrier entry down that's exactly right um so you know here i deal with london south bank university they've got a law clinic people come in throughout the day and be interviewed by the law students and they'll require a lawyer the the lawyer you know the law, local law firms will then sort of send someone in the evening sort of between six and eight in the evening after the working day and they'll sit with each of these uh, people that have come back and so as you can imagine out of the sort of 50 people that come into the law clinic every day they'll you know two or three of them will be able to see be seen by a real lawyer that evening um, and it's face-to-face -face meetings now if you can drill that down into a conversation and that lawyer can jump into that conversation like a whatsapp group and they can be in multiple at the same time, reading multiple conversations at the same time, because you've changed the medium of communication, you've changed literally everything about it. Lawyer no longer needs to go across town, sit in an office, uh, have these face-to-face -face calls, meetings, or have these people come to their office. It can all be done remotely. It can be done on the tube in the few minutes between uh, the station and the station as you come in and out of Wi-Fi. Um, yeah, so it's it's a different medium, and it's a medium that 
probably wouldn't make sense for the majority of the of the work that a lawyer does, um, but makes a lot of sense in the community advice space. Absolutely. So what kind of organizations are you working with right now? Um, well, look, the main organization we work with is in South Africa. They're called the Children's Institute. Um, they work on the intersection of so pro bono law mixed with research, mixed with public interest law and so on. And I'll tell you the context. There are 500,000 kids in South Africa who don't have birth certificates. Um, and so this particular organization is just focused on that. How do we help those 500,000 kids who don't have birth certificates? And so what they do is they get paralegals to engage with the parents of these kids, um, start loading up these cases on our system. Um, and then each of these cases that gets assigned to a pro bono lawyer and the paralegal and the pro bono work together to resolve the cases. Now, obviously, that takes some time. Um, but then what, what this client likes to do is once they've done the first 100 cases, they can start to look at the patterns and they can start to say, OK, so each case, you know, when it got to about month one, once we told the client to go there with the following piece of paper in the hand, it then pushed it forward. And then once we did, we told them to take this to this office and so on. And so they can start to build guides. If they find that there are places that there are blockages, they can start to um, litigate. They can start to sue home affairs and say, you need to do this faster or you need to change this rule or, you know, this particular process is sending someone in a spiral loop. Um, and so it's a sort of multi-pronged approach where on the one hand you help people, but then on the other hand you're able to measure the help that you that you're giving and because everything uh, falls into conversations um it's quite easy to see a timeline of each of the cases uh yeah so so that that's a client in south africa that we're helping um and we've been helping them for about a year we're augmenting the experience now with uh, with artificial intelligence so that we can start to do sentiment analysis uh, start to m measure and recognize patterns uh in the successful cases and hopefully then uh, you know make it possible to sort of amplify what they're doing um, and help them to work even faster. Can you talk a bit more about how that how that data might be implemented? So you're talking about sentiment analysis. What kind of yeah data can you collect and how would that influence the advice you might give? Um, although every, every single case is just a back-to-forward communication, um, we then allow them to design certain metadata. So in this particular client's case, they are dealing with children who lack birth certificates. So one of the things they look at is what is the parent? Is it a grandparent? Is it a mother? Is it a father? Is it um, a brother? Who came with them? Um, and then they start to, and then that would be a meta field. Another field would be what province are you from? How old are you? They start to put all these fields in the database and then start measuring against these fields. And then they can start looking for pattern tracking. So they can go, okay, these 10 cases were resolved within less than six months, whereas all the rest took over 12 months. What can we decipher from these cases? And that's where artificial intelligence becomes very useful. Um, it starts to find patterns that you never thought existed. Well, in when it's when it's the Eastern Cape and the mother is the is the uh, primary caregiver, there's more chance that if you go to the following yeah. office, you'll get the following result. You know, um, and that stuff you, you would be difficult for a statistician on their own to figure out. But uh, with artificial intelligence, it, it becomes prevalent. Then the other thing that you can do is because you're reading conversations and you're looking at natural language processing, you're able to uh, start cross-referencing, uh, cross-referring people within the network. So let's say someone's having a conversation about a refugee case, but then within the conversation, it turns out that there is a gender violence concern. It can uh, something can pop up saying, you know, I can see from the conversation that this has to do with gender violence. Have you considered referring this client to the following lawyer? Um, you know, and it can it can sort of suggest referrals within the network within the greater network and that's something that um, you know traditionally is quite difficult to do in the space because of all the privacy involved in these cases um, it's quite difficult to get enough people reading the conversations that you would um, that you'd be able to sort of pull off this level of um, of you know pinpoint accuracy putting the right person in touch with the right person to get it done quickly um, but with artificial intelligence, obviously, you can respect on anonymity and privacy while still, you know, leveraging off the data within the, the conversations. That's really exciting. The idea that you could, as you say, maintain privacy, but also kind of keep a tab on how a kind of case is progressing and then bring in other experts as needed, which presumably also is a massive efficiency saving, right? Because you're then you're honing in on who, which expertise belongs where. For sure. Like the, one of the biggest thing, big things in law is, and the same goes with doctors, you know, you go see a doctor and often if it's complicated, they'll say, okay, now you need to see that specialist and that specialist will send you to the super specialist. And so it goes. And with the law, 
that pattern happens even more often. You'll go to a generalist who might be the paralegal, and the paralegal puts you in touch with the lawyer they feel best, and and so it'll go. And that's where the where you get the efficiency gain. Yes, a young uh, associate starting out can figure out pretty much anything if they've got enough time in their hands. But an experienced lawyer who's seen this problem before can, in five minutes, look at it and tell you this is your answer or this is what you do next. Uh, but then also speaking to to privacy, in you know, for me this year coming into Microsoft AI for good and sort of being exposed to the solution set what and the solution space, one thing that occurred to me was how much AI can be used to really um, amplify privacy, right? To maximize privacy. And uh, I think the, the public have this perception of AI that it's the sort of spy in your home, you know, like mm. you think Alexa's sitting there in the corner and she's listening to everything I say. Um, but there is a, the biggest application that I see with AI in my work is to do the opposite. It's said the best person to listen to your conversation is a robot, right? Because that person is not a person. Interesting. Every interesting comparison. I, I wonder in the law, in the legal world, attorney-client privilege is you know sacrosanct how do you think ai will play into that or interplay with that kind of fundamental part of law right well you know if you look at legal tech what what's happening in in legal tech and law tech right now the major focus is on ai um and so you know what lawyers are now doing is how can we analyze ten thousand contracts you know in order to quickly uh summarize what's needed for a, a giant m a um, and so they're sitting on, on massive amounts of data. And so, as you rightfully point out, um, privacy and privilege are at the core of what, what happens. So a lot of the challenges that we face, um, because we're a sort of Slack for law or a WhatsApp for law, we're often a joining technology. We're joining various participants within the ecosystem. Um, and and so, yeah, what we get from Microsoft is the ability to sort of manage that data, um, silo that data in a way that everyone's everyone who's involved in the you know, everyone who's involved in the conversation basically has access to the data, but no one who isn't involved has access. And in many in many ways, technologies like this are, are very much embraced by the legal profession because what the what so many people do is they will work around the legal tech tools that are out there. So, you know, although a law firm might have product A and another law firm might have product B, when law firm A want to talk to law firm B, they'll end up using a WhatsApp or Gmail or Skype or something or nice. something like that. You know what I mean? They sort of uh, break out of the system. Um, and so one of the ways that our product is quite unique within the space is that we are this joining product. And that's why we call ourselves Bearbab Connect. Um, and the product underneath it's called Legal Connections. So the idea is building these secure connections between the various uh, stakeholders. That was Guy Stern, founder of Baobab Connect. Guy says that Baobab is still looking for more companies to work with and share in its platform. So if you're interested, please do get in touch. You can find them online at baobab.law. That's B-A-O-B. B-A-B dot law. And that brings us to the end of this episode of AI for Good, the brand new mini series from the What Comes Next podcast. Remember, we're releasing new episodes of this series every Thursday throughout the month of May. So make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Fantastic conversations yet to come. You don't want to miss an episode. So make sure you subscribe. And if you're interested in learning more about anything we've talked about on the show, don't forget to check out the show notes. We always put a bunch of good content in there. So give that a read. Thanks again for listening. We will see you in a week's time. Bye for now.